Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Today, I am here with Matthew Asbell. Matthew is a partner at the firm of Ladison Perry. Good to have you, Matt. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Matt's practice uh, focuses on intellectual property broadly. And Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, what... I know it's a lot of topics we were just sort of talking offline about. Uh, it's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... I... I always consider myself an intellectual property generalist, so I I I, have, I am a patent attorney. I do and I do practice in the areas of patent, trademark, copyright, domain name, um, but uh, the large large proportion of my practice is trademarks. Uh, now the trademarks may be uh, domestic U.S. trademarks, uh, or it may be um, abroad in other countries. Great. Um, uh, so yeah, and I I think we were actually even sort of saying I think the international scope is really important. I mean, that's a lot of work, right? I think advising people on on those issues, especially sort of as the economy becomes more global, do you find you're sort of dealing with more and more of that? Or I think that our firm has always dealt with that. Uh, and our firm is over 100 years old and was sort of founded on the principle of, of an international perspective, uh, originally by a, a British gentleman who came to the U.S., uh, seeking to help U.S. companies obtain their rights abroad. Um, so, yeah, I think our, our firm has always approached it that way. I would say the proportion of domestic versus foreign work in my practice has not changed significantly over the past 12 years uh, since I started practice. But, um, but I do find that many U.S. entities um, sort of wrongly or inappropriately approach their need for rights in other countries with a U.S. perspective that often gets them into trouble. So having some expertise in uh, in what the issues are in other countries and how it's viewed in other countries is very advantageous because uh, you can really help people recognize that they should view things from a different perspective than they're used to. Yeah. I can give you an example. Sure. Yeah, please. Um, actually, so we, you and I attended a, an event just prior to this. Um, where uh, one of the issues that was brought up is uh, the the uh, U.S. rule regarding trademark rights, which is that you're supposed to have use in U.S. commerce that supports obtaining a trademark registration. Um, compared to uh, rights in most other car- foreign countries, including China, uh, where... Uh, you just get the rights based on running to the government and filing an application. You don't have to actually be using the mark in order to obtain your registration. Right. And ultimately, you would just keep your registration if someone were to challenge it three years down the line or longer if you had if you could prove that use. Mm-hmm. But there isn't this sort of prior requirement of obtaining of having use in order to obtain a registration. Because of that. U.S. companies often take the perspective of, oh, I'm not yet in such and such country, so I'm not going to seek protection there, where that might be relevant from a U.S. perspective to some degree. It's often, often if, you're, if you think you're going to be entering a country in the next couple of years, it's a good idea to go already and go seek the protection um, in that country. And U.S. companies don't always uh, recognize that. Right, yeah, to do it sort of think more prospectively sort of as far as that um, aspect of it goes rather than waiting to, you know, be caught in a jam or to decide that you're going to expand into that country, I think. Um, and especially, I think, I mean, 
do you think the internet sort of has any relationship with this part of it? Certainly. <laughs> uh, I mean, the internet exposes brands that, you know, may may seem much more limited or may be much more limited in terms of their distribution uh, or, or what they do, uh, but exposes them to a worldwide audience or nearly worldwide audience. Uh, and, um, and even, and I've had this happen to clients, even where, um, you know, the client does not expect to be entering a particular foreign market in the short term future. Sometimes they find out that someone else has adopted their exact name or their exact mark or some very close variation and beat them to the punch. And then they are sort of frantically chasing, trying to get the rights that they could have otherwise gotten had they just sort of sought them earlier on. Yeah. Um, it should be mentioned that if you're a small company, you don't have a ton of money to, to spend on legal and on intellectual property rights. You may choose to, to cut corners a little bit and say not pursue registration worldwide from the get-go because that is a very expensive proposition. So what I often counsel clients is, okay, you know you're in the U.S. Your targets where you want to be are, let's say, the EU or Mexico or Canada or China or whatever it is. Based on what I know about their business and what they tell me, um, counsel, well, okay, let's seek registration in the U.S. and Europe and uh, and in six months, go ahead in, in China and in Mexico and in Canada, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of taking a, a portfolio view of I need to have these assets in all these different places where I intend to be in the, in the, in the, in the future. Yeah, I think I think portfolio is actually the word I, I think of is a great way to look at it. Sort of you have a collection of, um, you know, I guess, marks that would cover the areas where you think you're going to be. And that's sort of your portfolio of intellectual property that you own and you think about it sort of where am I making an investment in um, you know a region where I think I'm going to eventually get into business yeah and also where would I be really upset if I found out I couldn't get my my, my registration I yeah. couldn't use my mark yeah exactly exactly um, so before we uh, get too far away from it I actually wanted to talk more about um, sort of your interest in IP law and how um, uh, you kind of came into this field, um, how did you become interested in intellectual property? Uh, well, I'm a person who never wanted to be a lawyer in the first place um, and was always interested in creative endeavors, whether they were artistic or scientific. Um, so um, so I've had many prior lives, um, one as a songwriter and uh, a musician uh, and, a, and eventually a manager of recording artists. Um, and uh, one as a uh, trainer of proprietary software, uh, and one nearly as a doctor. I actually attended medical school. Um, And um, what I found as a result of my work in music, I found that uh, everything that I ever took interest in had this component of uh, creative problem solving, creative approaches, uh, creativity generally. And... uh, and so when I did decide to go to law school, which was as a result of having to look at uh, contracts involving music copyrights um, for the artists I was representing, uh, I found out that everyone else who was doing what I was doing at the time was in law school or, or had a JD, so maybe I should go. Um, but when I did go, I, I kind of realized that, gee, all these other areas that I had interest in that were not music, straightforward art, they were 
they were business and they were uh, entrepreneurship and they were uh, science and technology. All these different areas were attractive to me. And the field of intellectual property law would allow me to continue to operate kind of in the broad spectrum of science, technology, arts, creative, uh, creative endeavors. Yeah, I actually, um, interestingly, I feel very, very much the same way. I studied art in college. Um, I actually also studied business sort of at the same time. Um, and I remember sort of being in the studio painting and thinking about, um, you know, I really enjoy this. I love these creative um, pursuits and I think it's all very beautiful. Um, but uh, at some point I always sort of came back to how do you turn this into a business? And then once you get to that question, it's sort of, you, you have to address sort of the larger issues that all eventually I think become legal ones because you're trying to protect your work. You're trying to protect the, um, your ability to make a livelihood and your ability to produce more work. And I always thought that was really one of the things that I enjoyed about it and why I like it too. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, it, it's kind of funny as I, I'm listening to you speak, I'm, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about when I first got exposed to intellectual property and the truth is it was in my early teens. I was probably 12. Um, when I was saying, Hmm, I, I, I like writing music and gee, you know, apparently I had this cousin who was in the music industry and I, I never met her before. I wrote her a letter and, and, you know, spoke to her at one point and she said, well, you know, you ought to, you ought to register copyrights. And I remember filling out these forms and registering as a, as a young teenager, registering copyrights in my own musical work. As a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, which is so strange to me to be you know, <laughs> where I am now, kind of looking back. But, um, but it, you know, the, the artistic and the creative, you know, that's, I think that's what I value. And the legal is sort of the necessity in terms of how do you protect it? How do you, how do you get the advantages of what you created? Or how do you not get taken advantage of by others who, mm -hmm. who um, you know, and get the value for what it is you've created? So um, I think, all those kind of aspects drove me in this direction and I've been here for quite a while now. I think now is a great time to sort of move towards what I know we had talked about was going to be sort of the mainstay of this conversation. So your work on the renewal of the March of Time trademark. So this is a really old trademark for our listeners who aren't really familiar with it. Could you just sort of give like a little synopsis of what it actually is for? Yeah. So just to sort of set the stage, the issue is not merely the maintenance or renewal of the trademark registration, but um, but the problem is that it's a trademark registration that is so old that it covered uh, technologies that really are no longer used anymore. Um, and but it's so valuable to the, to the to the ultimate client to Time Inc. that um, that they wanted to find a way to retain it and. Um, and we'll talk about a, a program that we utilized uh, in the United States Patent and Trademark Office that allowed them to retain and retain and even update their their old trademark. But the March of Time is a, uh, a trademark registration that associates uh, with what used to be these films you would see prior to watching a movie. You'd go to the movie theater, and instead of a million previews like today, you would have a little few minute black and white movie mm -hmm. about something that's happening, some war effort, kind of like the 60 minutes of its day, I think, yeah. you know, and this was back in the 1930s. 
And so at whatever time they sought registration, they covered it essentially for the that film reel, uh, the film reel that they were then distributing to the movie theaters. Mm-hmm. But you can't go to a movie theater today and see a film reel like that. Where do you see it now? In 2017? It's on the internet. It's probably on YouTube, yeah. yeah it's in the I cloud. I think I actually, right? that's where I looked it up to try and find, I wanted to look at one and I think they had... I don't know. It was one of the videos about, I think, Nazi-occupied Germany, and I thought it was, I mean, of course, that's something you need to be worried about, but maybe not when it's only on a film reel, but no one watches film reels anymore. Yeah, that's that's right. Now, now typically, what we call film is, is a downloadable video on a DVD, or even that is somewhat antiquated at this point. You know, the way most people consume videos is now in a streaming online environment of course they can maybe they have a a dvr device like that at home where they might download so uh so how do you take a trademark registration which is which is limited uh by the goods or services in which it describes lists in the registration um you're not allowed to expand the scope of a trademark registration and say well now i'm adding these things typically what you would have to do is file a new application in the u.s and in most countries so, um, in, you know, in, how do you take a registration that covered film reels and say, well, yes, but it's streaming video and still keep the one you've got that has this priority date going back to the 1930s? The, uh, the solution was a pilot program of the United States Patent and Trademark Office where they have actually recognized this problem, that there are numerous trademark owners out there who you know, who filed for a particular form of media or a particular type of good or service at the time. And the technology has evolved such that mm-hmm. there's some there's something new that would more properly describe what they're really doing. Yeah. Um, and um, and just to just before we go into the program, because I think it's really, really interesting, but I also think um, it's helpful to have context um, because this isn't really a new problem. Right. I mean, technology has been evolving and evolving all of these years. Before this pilot came out, um, if you were, um, you know, if you had this issue, how would you address it? You would let your registration lapse and you'd file a new application. And the risks of doing that are that when you file the new application, of course, it's a new trademark office. It's not the, it's not the same as it was back then. So you might have issues raised in your, in your against your application from an ex parte perspective. The trademark office may have a refusal. Um, there may have been another party that adopted the same or similar trademark for those types of goods or services um, in the interim period, registered it, and is blocking you. So there's some risk to that. Um, there, there's also just the loss of this long-standing valuable asset this one that you've been including in agreements since the 1930s mm-hmm. um uh this one that when people are looking at it and valuing or valuing it are saying uh you know this is a valuable asset uh which wouldn't be quite the same as uh, a newly obtained registration for for the same mark for mm-hmm. for uh, you know for the proper goods uh i mean yes you could obtain that new new trademark registration principle um, and claim a date of first use going back to you know a certain year, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't have this asset that dated back to the 1930s that was registered in the USPTO for that long 
that um, and that was previously used on the, on the original goods for so long. And right. That is, and then you're able to keep that uh, to keep that asset. And, you know, in light of the various agreements that, you know, are made with other parties in relation to that trademark, having that asset is, is very helpful mm-hmm. to, to all the parties. That's great. So it's understandable then under those circumstances why time would want to take advantage of a program like this that allows them to still keep that really cool 1932 registration and just include sort of the modified and remove what's no longer necessary. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it was 1932, but but I'll, I'll take it. It's probably not. I mean, yeah, it might, it's in the 1930s. Yeah, let's just say 1930s. for factual. Yeah, factual. why would they not want to take advantage of it? And it's interesting because um, if you look at the statistics in the USPTO, very few uh, companies have taken advantage of this pilot program. Uh, it's been around since 2015. Um, it's not yet a permanent program. It's just a pilot program, but it's been extended. Mm-hmm. But one, uh, you know, one at least inference as to why it's not um, being utilized mm-hmm. is that the companies that own these uh, registrations for for earlier technologies don't know it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say that a lot of practitioners don't know it's there. So having that knowledge, which came as a result of some, some activities in which I'm involved, really it enabled me to suggest a solution when my client called me up, you know, kind of in a panic, mm-hmm. saying, hey, I've got this registration, it's coming up for renewal, and I don't think I can prove use for these goods because we don't do mm-hmm. film reels anymore. Right. Um, and I could say, oh, I have a very easy solution for you. That's you great. Know, let's... <laughs> You know, let's file this petition. Let's let's seek to update the technology instead of giving up, throwing it out, and starting over and hoping that the new one gets through. Do you think that clients tend to be receptive to these sort of new solutions? I'm sure anybody's happy to have, uh, you know, guess what? Now we have a you know potential solution is comforting, but also just if you've never been through a process before, I think. Maybe there might be a sense of, I wonder how long this will take. I wonder if it will be successful because there's not a lot of precedent to go off of. Where do you feel like people tend to come out on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point. I think, I think first and foremost, the client is looking for a, a good practical solution and is relying on, on, on me you know, as outside counsel to make a suggestion that is likely to get them what they want to accomplish, likely to help them achieve their goal. You know, so I think when we first talked about this particular registration, you know, there were some questions, hey, is this going to work? Can we really do that? We're changing, we're t- changing the classification. It's not mm-hmm. even the same classification as it originally was. Um, you know, can we do that? And it was our, our responsibility as outside counsel to do our due diligence, to look into the program. And of course, we said, hey, you know, we can't guarantee anything. It's a new program. How do we know if it's going to work? But we researched it sufficiently and found uh, and found examples that the PTO itself referred to that were, you know, dead on. They were they were exact examples. This was exactly the kind of, uh, of thing that the pilot program was intended for. And it's it's kind of interesting because, um, as I, under, I although I didn't participate in the conversation, I understand that um, that the trademark office actually conveyed that to uh, to my client 
when uh, my client followed up on the on the uh, petition and said, "Yes, this is the exactly the sort of the thing that we are trying to do," you know, um, in the USPTO mm-hmm. by this pilot program. And so the client felt very reassured, of course. So, looking a bit more prospectively, and again, I know we sort of touched on the idea of rapid technological advancements um, impacting the trademark registration process. I mean, obviously, this is a pilot program the last couple of years. How do you see the USPTO addressing these issues moving forward? Well, I think the first the first step, and I think the PTO is, is beginning to engage in conversations about this, the first step is to you know, more permanently implement the pilot program. Now, the pilot program has has some flaws to it, which you know we can talk about. But, um, but at least one step is is to do that. Um, another step, which I think is more from the perspective of trademark owners, is to recognize what's coming down the pike and what you might need to use your mark for as technologies evolve. At the time that you're adopting your mark. If you know that there are these other technologies coming down the pike, you could anticipate that, include them mm-hmm. in your application on an intent-to-use basis, as long as you could support your modified intent-to-use in that technology once it once it's available. So one thought I had uh, has to do with uh, virtual worlds, virtual environments, on you know, in the cloud and the internet mm-hmm. that are there now. There, there have been for almost ten years the um, the ability to go into a virtual world, say a virtual gaming space or a vir- or even just a virtual community um, where you can actually purchase digital versions of goods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if you're, if you make cars uh, and, you know, you register, you know, your trademark in relation to automobiles in class 12 and you have a new, mark you might you might consider well gee would there be a digital version of a car which mm-hmm. is software that um that people will be purchasing under that under this mark that i want to make available for purchase or that i want to license to others to make available for purchase in that environment right and so you have to kind of anticipate that or you have to say well i know that today i'm offering software on a dvd um but maybe um tomorrow i'm going to be uh, making the software available in the cloud, and that right. changes you from, uh, or at least adds from the class nine registration where you're covering software that is downloadable, software that's a file that you have as a product, versus software as a service in class forty two where mm-hmm. you're providing access to the software as a service. And so, if you anticipate that, knowing saying, "Hey, I know I'm going to have a mobile app, but I'm also going to have this online environment where right. you can access it," I need to make sure I, I seek to register both versions. Mm-hmm. Um, which you can do in the same application. Um, so it's a matter of anticipating when you know what's what's coming up. Um, and uh, and that's knowing your, your industry um, or getting guidance from your client as, the, as to the industry uh, and you know making sure you raise the issues where you can. And I love that you mentioned virtual reality because I've actually, I think that this is such an emerging um, technology that a lot of, people think about um, what it could be used for because it is literally replicating your world and 
as a necessary consequence of that, there's going to be involved probably the use of, I mean, these marks that you probably see on the street every day. I mean, if they're doing a virtual reality of New York City, they're going to have to go there. They're going to have to, you know, I, I wonder... Do you have anyone asking you about stuff like that, um, giving questions about these concerns? Or yeah, from time to time. I mean, I, I'd say the the vast majority of, of of clients and cases are are ones where they're saying, "Hey, this is what we want to do. This is what we're planning." Of course. So let's protect that. Yeah. And they aren't always going, "Oh, but there might be this, there might be that, and hey, this is coming around the pike, so we should be worried about it." Um, so sometimes it's for us to raise, um, but you know, the virtual world is not the only place where we would be raising these types of issues. I mean, it also happens in the context of, oh, you've adopted this name and you're planning to register it and use it in China in addition to U.S. or wherever else, this name in English. Um, gee, maybe we ought to consider protecting the mark in the local language, in the local language, in the local characters. Mm-hmm. Because not all countries will do what they do in the U.S., which is sort of essentially say that, oh, the translation is the same, so right. they're, they're, they're similar, so we're going to block it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some countries, you know, a different owner could own the translated version of the mark or the transliterated version of the mark mm-hmm. um, in the local language compared to the English. So you have to kind of anticipate this. Well, based on what you've told me and what you're planning to do, um, here is how we anticipate, you know, what might happen and what you might be concerned about. Mm -hmm. You might be concerned about the foreign language version of your mark. You're going to be in China. Why wouldn't you also protect that? Right. Um, Instead of waiting and then finding out as, as um, Michael Jordan did and Donald Trump did Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that gee, you're, you know, you're blocked, you know, because someone else already registered is already using this mark. In yeah. Michael Jordan's case, you had 3,000 something retail establishments using Chinese character version of essentially his name, Xiaodan. And he had to take it all the way up to the highest court he could and fight it over many, many years and spend a lot of money mm-hmm. to ultimately get, get that back. And ultimately, his ability to get that back was relying on his fame. So most businesses that are out there that have not proactively sought to register the foreign language version of their mark in, in China as an example, mm-hmm. if they don't do that, they may find that they are blocked and they may not be able to get it back or they may spend exorbitant amounts of money trying. Yeah. So you anticipate. And I think that this, even depending on the size of the business, I think this is certainly a consideration for large companies as well. I mean, even a big company that can afford to have a really broad trademark portfolio still wants to consider, well, am I throwing down more money to put an additional registration on something totally needlessly? Or, you know, am I doing it hopefully to avoid what could be a major consequential litigation later on down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think a large corporation may have a larger budget to be able to pursue more of what they might want and need Mm -hmm. um, than a smaller entity. Um, The principles are not that different. The, um, The large entity would need to protect its foreign versions of the mark. The large entity would be thinking about different goods or services that it wants to protect, or at least defensively. One thing that they'd have to be mindful of is not taking that U.S. perspective I mentioned earlier and saying, oh, yeah, we're not yet in this country. Right. Um, So being counseled as to, hey, you're planning on entering this country or you're manufacturing this country or you're going to be entering this country in six months or three years or whatever it's going to be, you want to protect it now and not find out later that you're Mm -hmm. being blocked. Um, 
So I think it's the same. I think with smaller businesses, what they sometimes find is is just weighing the cost and benefit. It might not be worth pursuing in all cases because they just don't have the money to spend on a whole portfolio um, and they might need to prioritize or do it in phases. And many of the smaller clients will will, will do that. They'll say, hey, okay, let's, let's worry about this batch of marks first in these particular countries and then we'll expand to these other ones or then we'll expand to these other goods or these other marks, whatever it is. So you try to... Uh, try to put together a plan and it's a uh, I'd say it's a uh, a policy regarding the registration practice as well as a policy regarding monitoring and enforcement um, and uh, you know and work with your outside counsel to kind of figure out what what is the best way to do this that's not going to break the bank and it's going to get you you know not too much more than what you need but anticipating what you're you know room for the future yeah exactly um, so we're about to wrap up, but I did just want to, um, just take it back full circle and, um, we'll make available links on our website, uh, and on Apple podcasts for listeners to access sort of information about, uh, the March of time so they can learn a little bit more about it. But, um, for anyone else who might maybe be having similar issues regarding, um, similar to what the, uh, the time issues were in the March of time, um, could you give any kind of just broad suggestion about how they might approach um, what to do? Well, the information is readily available on the on the USPTO trade uh, website, but uh, essentially it's a matter of filing a petition, um, telling the trademark office that you know these were the goods on which I used to use my mark and which for which it's registered. This is really how it's used now on these other goods. And this is what I'd like to uh, update my registration for. Here's my proof of use, mm-hmm. uh, proof of continued use. And then um, the trademark office will uh, will look at that and will uh, ultimately, if it's approved, will we'll publish it. Uh, they publish it right now on a, on a web page in the USPTO and not in their official gazette where they publish most trademark applications that are pending. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, they publish it there. Uh, to allow other parties an opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, you know, you're expanding this. I have an objection to that. You shouldn't be able to expand this. You know, you're expanding into my area with your with the same or similar mark right. or or you're um, or you're expanding really beyond more than you should be allowed to, uh, given what the trademark office program is and what you're doing. Um, and then uh, after that period, I believe they give them a 30 day period. Uh, to to raise any type of objection, and if there's no objection, then the trademark office, in due course, will update the registration. One aspect of of the petition and of what and what they do when they when they uh, when they update the registration is they actually they ask you to include new dates of first use. That is dates of first use that apply to the new technology, mm-hmm. so that the registration will show both the original dates of first use for the old technology plus the new technology with the new dates of use that apply to, to that mm-hmm. so that you know, there isn't confusion as to what, you know, what you're claiming. Um, but that's essentially the process. Um, I think because it's only a pilot program and, and relatively few have taken advantage of it, uh, it's not moving as quickly perhaps as, as uh, clients and, and counsel might like. Uh, and it does require a little bit of uh, ongoing monitoring and sort of prompting to make sure your case gets addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
but that's the gist of it and it's 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 not terribly hard to do it's just a question of knowing it's there and um knowing that your situation applies and then pursuing it thank you so much for having me here in your office to conduct this interview and uh it was great chatting with you my pleasure having you and, and thank you for including me um certainly if i can be helpful let me know The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.